Welcome to this week's Energy Show. So, heck, what's happening to the auto industry? It's a lot of changes. Now, there was some initial timid experiments with hybrids almost 20 years ago. And then it's really great that Tesla had the leadership to prove that EVs could really be in demand and a marketable product. And now then the major automakers about eight or 10 years ago started to come onto the bandwagon with good electric vehicles that were competitive with Tesla, the Chevy Volt, the Nissan Leaf, Fiat had the 500. And now... All automakers have hybrids and EVs. It's kind of ubiquitous. You go into the lot, there's you know, a lot of choices. So we're in the middle of a wholesale transition to electric vehicles for many reasons. And the automakers have kind of started to realize that this is the future. They're no longer dipping their toes into the water. They're actually saying, hey, you know, we better plan for our automaking facilities and our products to be pretty much all EVs in 10 or 20 years. The gasoline engine is going to be a niche product, in my view, in 10 years. You know, and then we see what's happening now. They're, they're actually changing their plans. They're changing their manufacturing product strategy. Earlier in 2018, Ford announced that they're not going to be making any more sedans. I think the only sedans they're going to keep making are the, the Mustang. The rest of their vehicles are going to be SUVs and crossovers and trucks. Now, the SUVs and the trucks, they're pretty profitable because they're, they're big. Um, the, the crossovers are kind of between an SUV and a sedan, but that's what a lot of people want to buy. And then just recently, GM announced similar plans along with those plans to pretty much get out of the sedan business and focus on crossovers, SUVs, and trucks. They're planning on laying off over 14,000 white-collar and factory workers as they basically retool their operations for SUVs and trucks. Now, I think what's also happening is they're kind of looking at what's going on with the tariffs, and they're saying, gee, we're going to have to really change where we're doing our manufacturing because it's becoming more expensive to manufacture in the U.S. And we'll talk about that more in a little while. Now, what I find really fascinating is the preference for vehicles for cars in the U.S. has really changed. You know, as I mentioned, Ford and GM basically are abandoning sedans for SUVs and crossovers. And you, know, you kind of look at these SUVs and crossovers. To me, they're basically station wagons with higher roof lines. I mean, that you know, that's what families in the 60s and 70s grew up with. You had a station wagon, that's what you put all your stuff in. But these crossovers and SUVs are bigger, they're taller, they have all-wheel drive usually, and they have more cargo capacity. So they're kind of a lot more practical. There's almost no more station wagons or estate wagons, as they say in, in England and Europe. Kind of was looking around for it. Only Buick of the U.S. manufacturers still makes a domestic station wagon. Now, what's interesting is BMW, VW, Porsche, Audi, Volvo, Subaru, Jaguar, and Mercedes all make station wagons. I mean, these aren't the, the monster town and country or, or Impala station wagons of the 60s and 70s. These are, these are a lot smaller, but they're still kind of low practical cars. My favorite is the Mercedes E63 because you can, 0 60 times is, is 3.0 seconds. It's kind of ridiculous, as fast as almost any electric vehicle, and certainly not that practical but it's kind of a, a cool station wagon sports car. But the foreign manufacturers are still enthusiastically making both these station wagons, but also sedans. Why? Because the, the demand for those sedans in, the, in Europe is continuing. The streets are smaller, the gas prices are higher, people aren't driving around SUVs and crossovers as much. So that's why we have so many foreign choices of station wagons and smaller cars. But the domestic manufacturers, the big guys, Ford and GM, heck, they're not going to make them anymore. They may make them in Europe. I'm sure they're going to make them in Europe and in Asia where people want smaller cars. But if there is a demand for these smaller cars and sedans 
sedans in the U.S. They might be making those in Mexico or Europe or China and importing them. So it's kind of interesting how these changes are happening. Now, there's also been a great growth in the selection and the choices of hybrids and EVs that you can get. And 10 years ago, it was mostly hybrids with just a few pure EVs in there. And now the trend is towards full EVs. Now, unfortunately, now, 2018, 2019, the EVs are still limited by the charging infrastructure. I mean, it's, it's not always easy to find a place to charge up in 15 minutes on every, you know, every other busy street corner, like you find gas stations everywhere. But that's going to change. And Tesla did a really great job of building their proprietary charging infrastructure. But other companies are building charging infrastructures. And there's other utilities getting into that, too. Now, th- there's the other kind of clouds on the horizon are the tax credits for EVs. Hopefully those will get extended and perhaps even expanded. And then what's going to happen with the tariffs that are disrupting the auto industry? One of the questions I had is why are the, the car preferences in the U.S. changing so much? Well, one big factor is the gas prices in the U.S. have been relatively low. As of today, you know, we're talking about December 2018, oil prices are less than $50 a barrel. The U.S. is like often, and there's three big countries about producing oil. The U.S., I think, right now is in the lead as the largest producer of oil, closely followed by Saudi Arabia and Russia. So we're kind of an oil economy. It's bizarre. And, and, you know, it's commendable that we were able to generate so much revenue and, and also commendable that we were able to avoid importing oil from countries that may not be entirely friendly to us, like Saudi Arabia and and Russia. And you see what's happening. The reason why oil prices are coming down is strictly supply and demand. There's a lot of supply, and oversupply means low prices. And economies that are basically dependent on exporting oil, like Saudi Arabia and Russia and a lot of other countries, they need to pump more oil, produce more oil to keep their economy going. I mean, Saudi Arabia is definitely in that situation. These low oil prices don't really help those countries. But it's certainly helping the world economy because we're not paying a lot for fuel. Now, back to these car preference changes. People are looking for more functional vehicles. I mean, we, you know, my family, we recently replaced our 10-year-old old Toyota, and we got another SUV because it's very practical. We can throw a lot of people in there. We can move things around. I'll talk about this more in a minute, but I can put a bunch of solar panels in the back. I can't do that in a sedan. So, and, and the other thing that's changing is, you know, as far as this trend towards big, bigger vehicles, the Trump administration is relaxing the fuel economy standards. That means that there's not as much of an expense related with these bigger SUVs and pickups. Not necessarily good for global warming, but it's good for the automakers because they can make more profits on these bigger cars. And GM and Ford are saying, basically, we don't need to hit these fuel economy standards, so the heck with making little cars, let's make bigger, profitable cars. It, you know, Unfortunately, it's a bad signal to send to consumers that less efficient vehicles are okay. But that's what's happening in the U.S., not in the rest of the world. Now, what's also happening is we've got these trade wars that are completely turning the worldwide car manufacturing business on their head. The U.S. is placing tariffs on imported car components and cars. So you've got engines, seats, controls, this stuff's imported from all over the world. Sometimes pieces get made in the U.S. partially, then exported, and then they come back into the U.S. So it's really disrupting the supply chain of the automakers that are trying to do business in the U.S. And if you have tariffs on the cars themselves, it's going to be even worse. Now, keep in mind that these tariffs you usually are retaliated by the governments on which we're putting the tariff. So we put a tariff on Chinese goods, China puts a tariff on our goods, and and the same thing for other countries. So when you have these tariffs going back and forth, you have these trade wars, manufacturers basically have two choices. Automakers have two choices. 
They can pay the tariffs on all the imported components and continue to manufacture in the U.S., where, quite frankly, costs are higher than most of the rest of the world. Or they can import finished cars from foreign factories. So what's happening is the U.S. manufacturers, like Ford, GM, I mean, all of them, BMW, Honda, Toyota, Mercedes, Chrysler, just go down the list, they are making cars in the U.S., but they're going to stop making cars in the U.S., and they're going to basically be making them overseas and just importing exactly what they need for the U.S. So the U.S. isn't going to be an exporter of vehicles because those vehicles are going to be, be encountered with really high tariffs overseas. So GM might as well continue to make more vehicles in Europe. It's interesting. Harley-Davidson kind of went through this exact same thing. They announced a plan last year when tariffs hit that they were going to be expanding their factories overseas. Why build motorcycles here in the U.S., which are great. Harleys are great. It's a classic U.S. vehicle. Why make them here when you would export them? There's going to be a huge tariff. Why don't you just manufacture them overseas? They're going to sell more. I think that the number was like the cost increase of a Harley-Davidson motorcycle in Europe would be one or $2,000. So they might as well make it over there. All right. Now let's talk about back to energy. From an energy perspective, as we're moving more towards EVs, the bond between auto companies and gas companies is breaking down. And this is historically, for over 100 years, an incredibly symbiotic relationship. The more cars that were on the road, the more gas that was used, the gas companies were making money, the oil companies were making money, and the car companies were making money. Now, it's also interesting, obviously, the gas companies were against fuel economy standards. Why? Because they want to sell more gas, not less. And that's one of the reasons why these fuel economy standards went into place for us to be more you know, have conserve more, but the Trump administration is trying to, to change that. It's in my view, it's not that good idea. But now it's changed because we're seeing similar symbiotic relationships between car companies making EVs and the electric companies, the utilities, and the charging companies. I mean, here's an example. A great local company called ChargePoint, they're a leader in EV charging. They're based in Campbell, California, where Cinnamon Energy Systems is located. They just raised $250 million for global expansion. And they're basically putting charging stations and partnering with companies all over the world to make it easier to charge up your electric vehicle. And their their investors in this latest round were Chevron, huge oil company, and American Electric Power, a huge utility, and Daimler trucks and buses. So we're seeing the same development between EV companies and the charging infrastructure companies as we did between car companies making internal combustion cars and the fuel companies. All right, now we're talking about the car manufacturing industry and EVs and things like that. There's something kind of interesting happening in California right now. California's been a leader in that. And one of the ways that they've been a leader is not only do they have extra tax credits, but they've been giving what are called high occupancy vehicle stickers or carpool lane stickers to customers of EVs. So if you buy an EV, you could drive in the carpool lane. And when there's a lot of traffic, it really helps to be able to go in that left lane where there's less traffic. Sometimes you can get to work a lot faster. Great program. They used to have these white or green stickers for cars. Now, unfortunately, and you know, lots of people are going to be impacted by this, but all of the existing stickers are going to expire on January 1st, 2019. So if you bought one of these cars, and I have one and going back to heck, 2011, if you received your original decal before 2017, you can no longer drive in the carpool lane. I'm bummed out. I'm going to have to take, it's going to take me 25 minutes longer to get to work sometimes. Going back isn't so bad because I go home so late. So what can you do? Well, the, pretty much the only thing you can do if you want to stay in that carpool lane is you're going to have to upgrade your EV. And you know, a lot of people have these older EVs. The newer ones are, are quite a bit better. I, they're, they're still working great. My Volt is kind of, you know, almost like new. 
but if I really do want to save time, it might be time to look for a new car. So I, I kind of looked at, I'm starting to look at, and kind of share this with everybody, look at what the new EV options are. I'm kind of looking at the, the options on a number of different dimensions. Certainly cost is a big factor, but I like to look at the efficiency, the range, and the cargo capacity. My wife looks at the style of the car, but I'm kind of a little bit more practical here. So first, Let's look at the different efficiency of the EV choices that are on, on the market. So basically, when I look at efficiency, I'm kind of looking at that in, in terms of the mileage you get. And it's not like my, it's not mileage miles per gallon that you have with a gasoline car, but it's the miles per kilowatt of energy that goes in into the car. So and you can eventually make a calculation to see what that's going to cost, you know, miles per dollar. But I'm not going to get to that because it varies so much. But there is some pretty good information and data about the miles per kilowatt hour of electric vehicles. Now, what's interesting about these metrics of efficiency, miles per gallon or miles per kilowatt hour, gasoline prices vary from point to point around the country. You know, heck, heck sometimes in New Jersey, it might be $3 a gallon. It might be $4.5 a gallon here in California because of the taxes and then all these other reasons. But when I kind of look at the electricity price variation, it's tremendously larger. I mean, right now in California, the average rate is about four, uh, 30 cents a kilowatt hour for, for people that are charging up cars. But if you're on the EV rate and you charge at night between 11, a, 11 p.m. and 7 a.m., your electric rate is only 12 cents a kilowatt hour. So that's a pretty good deal compared to 45 cents a kilowatt hour on the EV rate if you're stuck kind of charging in, in during peak times in the afternoon. So, and you take it one step further, if you were to put in solar and charge with your solar system, you're looking at charging at six or seven cents a kilowatt hour. So that's a pretty big advantage. But you go around other parts of the country, there's lots of places in the country where electricity kind of all day is still around 10 or 12 cents a kilowatt hour. So those places, EVs make a lot of sense. So what I did is I, I looked around for some data that ranked the cars by the most miles per kilowatt hour. That's kind of the highest efficiency. And I kind of looked at all this data and, and I was there's some outliers in there, but it's kind of, there's some interesting trends. So this, these trends really have to do with the technology that's used in electric vehicles. So first of all, the motors and the regenerative braking are not 100% efficient. Understand and think about electric motors, they're more efficient than gas cars, but they're not 100%. Electric motors might be 90% efficient. Gasoline cars, in terms of the energy in the gasoline going in versus the motive power that that, that motor is able to provide, probably down around 50 or 60%. But then you have regenerative braking, and that's where you're able to capture the energy that went into moving the car and you can actually, instead of turning that energy into heat that you'd have in disc or drum brakes, you actually can turn that energy back into electricity and recharge the battery. But it's not 100%, maybe 80% efficient. So what ends up happening is smaller electric vehicles, lighter electric vehicles, and keep in mind, electric vehicles are heavy because they've got so many batteries in there, but there's heavy and there's really heavy electric vehicles. More aerodynamic electric vehicles, they're going to get better mileage. They're going to get more miles per kilowatt hour. You know, and just like gas cars, cars that accelerate really fast, really big engines, definitely have some less efficiency, less, fewer miles per gallon. So, and the reason for that is the, the mileage is affected by how fast battery is discharged and then charged. When you're discharging it really fast or you're charging it up really fast, you're not 
putting energy into that battery or taking energy out quite as efficiently so that some of it's lost as heat. And, and there's also some factors related to how much the battery is discharged. And that's something that the, the car companies and the battery companies work on really hard. So un, unlike gasoline cars, when the tank is literally empty, and I, I do this on my Volt all the time, I just run until basically there's zero gas in there. Then, of course, I'm still running on the battery. But battery cars, the batteries are never completely out of juice. There's a controller in there that says, okay, our battery level is down to, say, 20%. We don't want to go below that, and that's when you're basically, you know, technically out of juice. So I'm going to let's just kind of skip through some of these cars that I found. So at the top of the list is a Hyundai Hyundai car. It gets 4.46 miles per kilowatt hour, and then kind of that that one's really an outlier. It's really good. It has 125 miles of range. A small Hyundai. The Chevy Bolt is kind of number two. It's at 3.97 miles per kilowatt hour. The new Nissan Leaf 2018, 3.95, just a little bit behind it. Yeah, and, and the Chevy Bolt has mileage of 238 miles. That's great. The Nissan Leaf has a 150-mile range. And really, that's mostly because the Bolt battery is a 60-kilowatt-hour battery compared to the Nissan Leaf battery's 38. And just kind of looking, going down the list, the Tesla Model 3 is, is up there at 3.94 miles per kilowatt hour. The Volkswagen e-Golf is is 3.91. The Tesla Model 3 long range has less miles per kilowatt hour because, you know, it's got a bigger battery and it probably accelerates faster. There's the Hyundai Kona. The BMW i3 is kind of down there. And then we get down to the Kia Soul, which is 3.67. The Fiat 500e, which is one of the early EVs, that's down to 3.5 miles per kilowatt hour. The Ford Focus is down there at the Tesla Model S, and the Teslas are all different based on the size of the battery, but that's a 75D model, 3.31. That's a bigger, heavier car, and, and you know, it's, it's a little bit older. Then you got the Jaguar I-Pace that's, that doesn't have really great mileage at 2.94 miles per kilowatt hour, and then at the bottom of the list is the Tesla Model X. That's an SUV. It's kind of high. It's also heavy. It's also got a big electric motor, pretty big battery, down at 2.83. So it's kind of interesting to see how these ranges are all over the map. Some are really good, efficient, tiny local commuter cars. Some cars are designed to really pretty much replace a regular car. I mean, the people that I know with the Tesla Model X, it's a great SUV. They have a lot more range. Of course, a lot more expensive. You know, for me, I need a car that can easily go to San Francisco and back without my kind of getting worried about it. So I, I need a car that has a range of about 150 miles. I'd like one that would get me to Sacramento and back, but I just can't make it. Yeah, I hate to go on these long trips, and when I get there, I've got to leave an extra half an hour to find a place to charge up my car. That's why the Volt is so great. The the cars with the longest range, the, the Jaguar I-Pace, the Tex, Tesla Model 3 long range, they're pretty good. I'm, uh, I'm going to keep looking to see what I can find. Now, also, with regards to cargo capacity, I have a strange requirement. So I need to put a 60-cell standard solar module in the back of my car. These things are 40 inches wide and, and about 66 inches long. The barely, barely fits in the back of my Chevy Volt if I fold the seat down. Luckily, I'm, I'm short, so I can slide my seat up a little bit. But that solar panel fits in there. I probably can put two or three if I needed to. Not that I really have to, but once in a while, a customer wants to see one. A solar panel, I've learned through experience, won't fit in most EVs. So my preference really when I'm looking for something is an SUV type. So I'll be at the dealerships with a tape measure. And when we were buying our, our previous SUV, I wanted to make sure that the SUV we picked actually was able to fit some solar panels in the back. The Toyota Highlander that we had in the past Believe it or not, I loaded 21 60-cell solar modules up in that thing, and it was great. 
So here's my advice, because I'm shopping for an EV now, so I can keep using the carpool lane. There's a lot more choices than when I bought my Chevy Volt in 2014, although I still really like the Volt because I got that gas engine. And if I, I don't have to worry about finding a place to charge up, I can just put another 9.3 gallons of gas in there and go another 300 miles. Now, as far as cost effectiveness, EVs are really cost effective if you're charging by solar or you're charging at night at those really low EV rates, or obviously if you charge at work. So, but I still have a little bit of range anxiety. We're not looking at this really easy drop of the hat. I don't really worry about charging. I, I got a plan for that where I'm going to charge. But there's also still great incentives for EVs. There's a, there's a federal tax credit, but that's going away at GM and Tesla. Most of the other companies still have those tax credits. So good time to shop. Lots of choices. There'll be even more choices. And obviously, as a solar guy, I'll remind you, which if you don't need this reminder, it's a great time to power your car with rooftop solar. So that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you missed any of today's show, you can go to our website at cinnamon.energy. 